Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, a young lady of many talents, two-time primetime Emmy Award winner, actress, director, a little bit of everything that is fine arts, Lee Purcell. Lee, welcome to Seldom Said. Uh, thank you, Robert. It's my pleasure to be here. I'd like to start off with uh, a little bit of the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Wow, that's a big question. Hmm, let's see, where should I start? I guess I'll start with birth. That's probably a good, a good jumping-off point. Um, I was <clears throat> born in, um, on a Marine base, Cherry Point, North Carolina, a lot of people think I was born at Camp Lejeune because my middle name is Jeune and my first name is Lee, but not true. Um, and uh, being a military family, we moved a lot. And unfortunately, my father was killed when I was a small child. And my mother, and then I was raised by other relatives for a while. And then my mother remarried, and but she married another military man. So... Uh, we moved some more, and we kept moving. And I think that uh, moving a lot as a small child, it stopped when I was about six, uh, when my stepfather uh, came out of the Navy and, and went into um, private practice. He was a Navy doctor. Uh, I think the moving has um, has done done me well as a small child. I think I got a, very accustomed to a lot of changes both in uh, location and in who was raising me at, at any given moment. And I think that, uh, for me at least, it's, it's been um, a very healthy thing for me. Not my father's death, of course. That was hideous. But, uh, but the moving and then having to get accustomed to uh, new parental figures and so forth, I think that's very good for me. I, I think for a lot of people it may not have been. But I think for me, it worked. So that was my early, early, early background. And then where would you like to go from there? I was rather curious when you talk about the changes. There is a program, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. I'm not sure if it's still on the Arts Channel, but they've interviewed people who have gone through the same experience. Halle Berry, Gene Hackman. Did it prepare you? Do you feel to practice the art of acting in that you were constantly being introduced to new friends and new locales. One's life seems a series of, a series of vignettes, or am I reading too much into it? <clears throat> no, I think you're pretty accurate, actually. Um, because I had both experiences, because the first, uh, and I have a, uh, a lot of people don't have um, or some people don't have a memory of their early childhood, but mine is very vivid. And uh, and then, so those first six years uh, were completely different from the next, uh, say, 11 years, because I left home at 17. Um, I think that it prepared, I think the, the constant changes in locale and in uh, family members I think it I think it did prepare me in a strange way of course I wasn't aware of it at the time but I think it did prepare me for uh not just meeting new people because as an artist as you know um you meet new people all the time and you're constantly being thrust into different situations with different sets and different crews and different films and different casts and even auditions you know you know they're different and I think that um, all of that early, early moving uh, was was did prepare me in a strange way. Even though, like I said, I wasn't I wasn't aware of it, and I think that I think it uh, because I remember when we when we settled, and I remember that, and uh, it was strange. It was it was really odd to me that like, well, when are we moving next? Well, we're not. 
like, why not? And because we're done with that. And it was, it was very odd to me. And so I, I think it developed a, a, those early years developed a restlessness that um, has been quite healthy for me. You mentioned leaving at 17. A number of poets have used the phrase leaving their windows open. Were in a sense, were you always in preparatory mode for moving out and seeing what the world was like? Now, that is a really good question. You just gave me chills. Yes, I was. And <clears throat> I remember uh, looking around because we were in a very small town, very nice people, and I'm still friends with a lot of them. But um, I remember looking around and, and really thinking about, is this what I want to do? Is this what I want to be? Is this where I want to be? And the answer was no you know, to all of those questions. And when I was, um, uh, and also there were things I observed about how uh, women were treated. And I didn't want to be treated that way. I didn't want to be um, dependent. I didn't want to have to ask a man for money in order to buy groceries. And I, I, I observed that, and I didn't like it. And I also, because I was an artist from a very early age, I started uh, modeling at three uh, when we were living in Dallas. <clears throat> started modeling for Nemo Marcus, the flagship store there. And then when I was five, we were living in uh, Millington at, on the Naval Base, and I started doing TV in Memphis. And then in between there, I started studying dance. So it was a real early um, life for me. And so when I was 13, going back to your question, um, uh, preparing, preparing to, to fly, uh, I, I looked around at 13 and I thought, I'm never, I'm never getting out of here unless I have money. And so I, I walked downtown and it, it was quite a distance uh, to a bank and I had a little money. And in those days, you know, you had as a minor, you had more uh, freedom than uh, minors do now. And so I walked downtown, and I went to the bank, and I opened up a savings account. And I thought, this is how I'm getting out. And I, every, and I worked. Um, I had jobs. I had after-school jobs. And, and um, you know, you, as a kid, you get birthday money, Christmas money, that sort of thing. And so every penny that I got in, whether through work or gifts, I went to that account, and that was my my freedom account. And um, and then I worked really hard to graduate high school early, and uh, such a long story. But but I got all my credits, and I went to summer school, and I worked very hard because I wanted to graduate at sixteen. And so by the time I was sixteen, by the time I was, I guess I was a sophomore, no junior, um, entering. Well, I finished all my credits when I was 16, but then uh, I had to, because I was a minor, uh, and, and this way it, it was a very strict time, but in another way it wasn't. So because I was under 18, I had to get parental and the school to give me permission to graduate early, and they wouldn't do it. So I was stuck for another year um, with really nothing to do. Um, I had one credit left to get, which I had planned on getting in summer school and uh, with the year after uh, junior year. And so I, I had, didn't have anything to do. So I spent kind of a very <laughs> relaxed year in school um, doing my, take my one credit. And then I took a bunch of uh, freshman electives and and then I finally, uh, uh, finally graduation came, and I was gone within three days. And I never went back. I mean, I went back to visit, of course, but I never lived there again. And so I was, I was off. It's a marvelous story. By the way, uh, never feel loath to go on. Was as, as Hemingway said. For instance, the middle of the story is the hardest to write, but it's the one that keeps both ends together. 
So in point of fact, the detail is important. And to repeat myself, that is indeed a marvelous story. It says a great deal about yourself and what you've done with your life. With all of these experiences, though, Lee, is there something that you would consider to be an epiphanal moment? Something where you said, in the morning I was so different than I am now. Well, are you talking personally or professionally? I would think that they embrace. I could be wrong. I'll clarify it if I am. I Well, I think that they embrace. I I rem, uh, but I think for me, uh, because I didn't have a linear childhood um, like a lot of people do, and a lot of people don't, uh, but for me it was, <clears throat> I think I had a lot of epiphanies because of that. There wasn't like I grew up and there was mommy and daddy and and then the siblings came along or came along earlier and and then... You know, we lived in the same house in the same town, and and everything was um, calm. Um, it wasn't like that, and uh, I don't even know what that's like. It's so foreign to me. When I meet people, and they're like, "Well, yeah, you know, I had the same parents and lived in the same neighborhood," and I think, "Wow, that's that's interesting. I don't know what that's like." I mean, I had that from say six until I graduated high school, but it wasn't, but there were all those early years. And then um, being um, uh, a child who uh, had, I essentially had two completely different families or three because I had my, my father's family who I was very close to and my aunts and my grandmother and, and so forth who lived in another town and then I had the step family and and the step grandmother and so forth, and then I had my maternal family, so I kind of bounced around a lot and uh, between all these families, even all the way through until I graduated high school. And you know, I didn't spend say Thanksgiving with my mother and my stepfather. I spent it with my aunts and and my grandmother on my father's side. So. I know this is a very circuitous um, answer to your very good question. Um, but I think because of that kind of random kind of uh, growing up, that uh, there were many epiphanies. And, you know, I, I can look at it like a movie and go, oh, yeah, there was that one and there was that one. I think one of them that comes to mind, like I touched on, a moment ago was I didn't want to be dependent because I remember a moment um, that I watched um, a female family member uh, have to um, not beg but kind of cajole uh, the male figure for money because she didn't have any money of her own. She didn't work. And I just thought that was a big epiphany for me. And, I, and that was like, oh, I'm not, I'm never going through that. I'm going to work. And I'm going to have my own money. I'm going to have my own freedom. And I'm going to choose my own life. And that was a big, just watching. Um, and it wasn't unpleasant. It wasn't like she was crying. But it was like having to ask for a handout. And I didn't, I didn't want that in my life. So that was a big epiphany for me personally on becoming uh, an independent woman, which was not as prevalent then as it is now and, and became shortly thereafter. And then, like, and then, like I mentioned, when I was 13, I had a, I had a moment of looking around, kind of like, you know, you get lulled into complacency when you're a kid and because you're, you're living your life and you're going to school and you're hanging out with your friends and you're doing your homework. And, and so you're not real aware, I don't think, of, of your surroundings for a while because you're, you're busy. And then I remember one day looking around and going, oh, my gosh, this is, and I was, like I said earlier, 13. This is not for me. 
I'm not staying here. It had nothing to do with the people. People were wonderful. It just had to do with the stifling environment, um, which was not friendly to artists and and not not uh, not friendly to females. And it just I just woke up. I mean, it was like an awakening. It was it was an epiphany. And that's when I started planning to leave. And um, so that was that personal epiphanies. And then do you want to hear a professional epiphany? Certainly. Okay, well, I remember this real well, first of all, I did a, did the first TV show as five in Memphis. And that was fun and it was great and I I kept doing that show frequently for about 8 years. And um but when I was 7, the school I went to, which was a small school in a small southern town, which was incredibly so, I think, at that time in that place, very progressive and very traditional at the same time in its educational format. And I think I got a a fantastic education. And people are usually shocked by that. It's like, what, you got a fantastic education in a small town in Arkansas? It's like, yes, I did. Because we had to study Latin. We had to do a second language. Um, We had so many arts classes, performing arts, not fine arts, but performing arts, which was which was my bailiwick, and and we had tremendous teachers, and I don't know how this came about, but but it was it was really great, and so in when I was going back to the epiphany topic, when I was seven, um, the school put on an operetta of Peter and the Wolf, and and full on orchestra. The book, it was great. It was just great. And I got the role of whatever the bird's name is. Do you know what the bird's name is in Peter and the Wolf? It's been a very long time. Yeah, me too. Um, But I got that role. And and so I wore this bird suit and whatever this role is. And, And that music to this day, you know, it's just... I love that music to Peter and Wolf, and it's been used in a lot of films, and, and so very popular piece of music. Anyway, I got that I got that role, and we went through our rehearsals, and we had opening night, and then my entrance came, playing the bird, and I had no dialogue, and I don't think I sang. I think I just danced, and. I came out on the stage and 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 did my choreography. And um, and people started applauding in the middle, and it wasn't an act break or anything. It, they just started applauding, and it was like, oh, wow! So I just I kept repeating my number <laughs> because every time I would every time I would flap my little wings, the audience would clap, and it was so thrilling. And then I realized I could play the audience like a conductor plays an orchestra and I could do certain moves and, and I, and I could make them applaud. That's fascinating. It, and that was it for me. It was like, Oh, I like this feeling. This is what I'm doing. Perhaps, was, please continue. Perhaps going in that direction, and I do want to obviously talk about uh, Carol of the Bells and so many other things, but uh, the product of a good interview is looking at the clock and noticing how time is going by so quickly. So uh, I and my audience are most appreciative. There is a story told of Janis Joplin. She went back to Port Arthur, Texas, and tried to recapture that moment of singing on a stage and interweaving her emotions with those of the people watching her, and she found there was a clash between what she had become and what she might have been. 
Do you find a separation in going back and visiting? Well, I, I don't go back and visit anymore. And I, I did, did, didn't for a very long time. And then I started going back again because I had a child and, and I wanted my son to you know, know uh, his grandmother and uh, other relatives. And, um, but, but my parents, have, uh, my mother and stepfather have passed away. So <clears throat> I have no more reason to, uh, to go back. And if, you know, if, if I want to see my friends, they can come here. And we are in touch um, a lot. And, but yes, I did. It was because I went out very early and had uh, really a great life and have done so many things, so many films and so many TV shows and lived in Europe and, you know, traveled extensively and have a wonderful, wonderful, huge circle of friends and, you know, and when I went back, um, I went back after my first film, and and it was already like them and me, because it, there just wasn't anything to talk about. And I did get over that eventually, and and because it was a learning experience for me, I had to learn, you know, better how to deal with people and so forth. But it it was it was a huge it was for me it was a, it was a culture clash. It was I am now I have moved on to this other planet, and not that it's better, not that it's superior, but it's different. And so I live on this planet, and then when I went back to that planet, it was it was foreign to me. And it, it remained foreign to me. And, uh, you know, the friends, the really good friends I had there, uh, some of them, one in particular, left like I did. She wanted to become a singer. And, um, and then the other ones, they had this linear life. And they've, not that they've had bad lives, they've had great lives. They've had careers, they raised families, you know, they've, they've been happy. But it wasn't my path, and my path was so vastly different that, you know, I was like a Martian to them, and probably like Janis Joplin, like a Martian. So, yeah. When you... I could appreciate that. When you read about uh, child actors, models, and persons who have dance in the same circumstance you did. There are so many reservations that people now have, so many concerns. If someone were to come to you and say, my child can sing, she can dance, she can act, she can be everything on stage, and I want her to be, and she wants to be, what advice would you give? Wait, be a child, move on, or jump in? You know, Robert, it just depends upon the child. Every child, like every adult, is different. And it also depends upon the child's family. I have had that situation many times. And I have a lot of friends who are former child stars. And all of them are remarkably sane and have happy lives. I'm talking about big child stars. And, and they're all, like, normal. They're normal people. And some of them went off and had different careers as an adult. Uh, some of them are still actors or singers. Uh, some of them have many children, like seven, and have great parents. And I, you know, and then I've seen the darker side. And um, I have had people approach me, and I just look at it and go, you know, not my decision. This is not my circus. These are not my monkeys. If you want to do that, you know, please, please listen to your child. And if the child, if it's the child's dream and the goal, like when I was a kid, that was my dream and my goal. And if I had lived in a city, I, I probably would have been ended up on a TV show or in films or something at a very early age um, instead of 
you know, the more um, rural uh, things I had to do. I would have been happy. I would have been a happy child. I would have been a much happier child, actually, had I been able, had I had those opportunities. Um, so it just depends on the child and depends on the parents. I always say if, if it's the child goal, if it's the child's origination, and the child keeps saying it over and over, please, you know, I want to do this, I want to, you know, then give it a go. Um, but if it's the parents, and I think very, very often it's the parents who are looking at the paycheck. And then, no, definitely not. Let that child have their childhood, and, and the parents should go earn money themselves. An odd question, perhaps, but it's often been asked of people in the theater arts. Can you still play with the naivete and innocence of a child, whether it's playing at yourself or playing at a character? Well, that's a pretty deep question. I just don't want to be intrusive, so... No, not at all. I'm thinking about it. It's a really good question. You know, I I think so. I'm reviewing all the roles I've done, and which is a lot. Um, I I think so. There's a little bit in the recent film Carol of the Bells. There's a little bit of that, even though the woman I play, she's a she's a caregiver. She runs a care facility, and and she is the the champion of this woman who has Down syndrome. Um, but there is a little bit of that because we have some some sweet and funny moments where we are conspiring, and. Uh, for a particular goal, and um, and I think I have some of that in those moments, and I I think maybe if somebody does that type of work, uh, being a caregiver, working in a care facility, I think you have to be willing to expand your own viewpoint, your own mind, to uh, incorporate people with disabilities, because they have a much more refreshing uh, type of type of viewpoint. And it is more childlike in some ways. I'm not saying that in a demeaning way. I'm saying that it's refreshing. And, um, and I found that when we were working on the film, and I was, I was working with an actress who does have Down syndrome, and then and then a lot of the crew, 70% of the crew, have uh, various disabilities, neurodiverse disabilities, physical disabilities, all kinds of different disabilities. And there's a refreshing um, enthusiasm, I think would be a good way to put it. So, yeah, I think I can still do that, even though because my childhood was kind of rocky, um, I don't think I had a lot of of those qualities as a child. I think I have more of those qualities as an adult, if that makes sense. Indeed it does. Treasure those qualities, Lee. They can dissipate and disappear, and I've seen people spend their entire lives trying to find them again. Carol of the Bell sounds like a unique experience. I've interviewed Jerry twice, She's a marvelous human being. Do you find, as a professional, it easy to play off that more basic life source on stage? On stage or on film? On stage or on film, when you're presenting yourself. Now, what do you mean by the basic life source? I'm not quite, I don't follow you. Someone might approach you and talk about being in love with the girl next door, and it becomes so intricate that it becomes Shakespearean, here you have someone with their eyes, with their motions, with their mouth and face, sharing an innermost vulnerable feeling. Do you find it easier to play off that professionally? If you mean that they're really in the moment and they're really projecting the yes. character, yes, oh yes, definitely, 
definitely. Somebody who's just phoning it in, it's real hard uh, to work with that, really hard. Or somebody who's on drugs um, or who's drunk, and I've worked with those kind of people, uh, it's very hard. You know, you, you, you might as well be acting with a, with a pole. And it's very difficult. But if somebody's there in the moment and they're sharing with you, and it's, it's, it's elating because that's why you do this is to have those, have those moments. It's a wonderful thing. Acting the caregiver. Now, you've performed in the States and obviously on the London stage as well as actress, as I shouldn't use that term, actress, as an actor and a director. Do you find that English audiences present their theater quite differently? It would be easy, or perhaps easy for me to say, but more professionally easy, for a trained actor to play the caregiver than the Prince of Denmark. Did you find a, a different approach? Well, I'm trained in both schools. I'm trained in, in the British um, School of Acting and the American School of Acting. And I've also taught both. Well, I've taught, I've taught film acting in England to British actors. Um, so I didn't teach them their style of acting. I taught them my style of acting. Um, it's, um, the lines have blurred more in, I'd say, the past 20 years. Uh, prior to that, the lines were very distinct because when I was studying with my teacher in London, um, Margot Lister, it was a different approach than how I had been trained in America. And it's, I always think of it as um, the British style as outside in and the American styles or school of thought as inside out. Because I was, I was taught to, in the British style, and, I, and like I said, the lines have blurred um, since then. But I was taught to uh, go for the physical, go for the voice, um, go for the movement, all of that first before building the interior life. And whereas the American school of thought, of acting, is build the interior life first and then and then go for the exterior. So they're very different, or they were very different. I don't think as much now, but they were very, very different. There is a marvelous book uh, entitled uh, James Dean, The Mutant King. And in a number of the chapters, he describes his life in similar pattern to the way you've just spoken. He built the internal life, but then he found himself trapped by the internal life. People talk about the method and about living a role. What are your opinions in those regards? <clears throat> well, there are many different uh, ways to peel an onion. And if the method works for an actor, then that's their method. It's not mine. I don't, I don't like it. It doesn't work for me. Um, because it's, I think it's, uh, and mind you, there are many brilliant actors who use that, who use the method as their method. But I often wonder, and I know people personally, who, they were brilliant before they studied that method. They just were inherently good. And sometimes uh, that particular method is damaging, and sometimes it's enhancing. Um, I had a brush with it and uh, studied it a little bit, and it just wasn't for me. It just wasn't. Uh, because of the... It relies upon pain. And 
that doesn't work for me. So when I think of people like James Dean, who apparently had a lot of pain, and I think life has enough pain. I don't think as artists we need to develop more pain. I'm just really opposed to that. And when I have taught, you know, I, I don't do that. It's like, if you want to cry in a particular scene or in a particular cue, there's other ways of doing it than recalling some tragic moment in your personal life, which after you recall that five times, doesn't work anymore anyway. You know, it's gone. So you better come up with some technique instead. So I am all about technique and uh, certainty and exploration of the character. And then I'm big on research. There are any number of people who have a view of what a movie should be. Sean Penn, uh, in an interview, made a number of comments about films that were simply entertaining and therefore rather useless in the long run. Now, Carol of the Bells is both entertaining, poignant, romantic, a little bit of everything, plus it teaches one where the heart should lie. Do you feel that there is a place for the purely entertaining film? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I do feel like there's um, a big space for films that are purely entertaining. I mean, think about going all the way back to Shakespeare. And you would have people come, and if you've, you know, if you've been to the, you know, unfortunately burned down, but, um, but if you've been to London and gone to see Shakespeare plays, and um, they're very lofty now and kind of, you know, grand. But if you think about when they were originally represented back in Shakespeare's day, you had people who would come in with their, their uh, dinners and, um, and they would have tomatoes or some kind of rotten fruit at hand to throw at the actors if they didn't like the performance. They would eat their dinners while they were watching. They were, it wasn't grand. It was, entertain, it was entertaining. And so I am always happy when there's a movie that's pure entertainment because not everybody wants to go to the movies and be provoked or go through, uh, you know, some sort of emotional journey. I mean, I like that, but not everybody likes that. Some people just want to go and, and escape and have a good time and have a good laugh or a good cry and then walk out, you know, happy. So, yeah, entertainment has had, had its place since, gee, the caveman when they used to, you know, sit around the fire and tell the stories of the hunt. It's had a, it had a big place in society. I, I think it's very elevating. Your life story uh, seems to be interwoven, at least as a professional, with some of the activities of Steve McQueen. And we're mentioning serious plays and things purely for entertainment. He started in car chases and ended up with Ibsen. Can you give the audience a bit of description as to your relationship with Mr. McQueen and who he was and what he did? Well, let's make sure we know that we're talking about Steve McQueen, the legendary movie star. We're not talking about Steve McQueen, the brilliant current director. So let's just be clear on that. Um, Steve was um, a major, major part of my life. He was my uh, mentor, and he selected me to star in a movie that his company was producing. And I had never done a movie. I had never, I had said one, one line on a TV show. And I had studied extensively, but I hadn't had that break yet. So he gave me my break. Um, the movie was not a huge success, but the fact that Steve McQueen chose me out of 500 
actresses gave me um, a credibility in Hollywood that I certainly did not have. And it made people uh, be willing to, to meet me. And, um, and that opened uh, a lot of doors for me. And uh, personally, he was, he's a wonderful human being. And he was, and he was of my parents' generation. So I looked at him as more of a, of a father figure and an artistic mentor. And he was also, of course, a lot of fun. And he taught me a lot, taught me how to behave on the set, and he taught me how to save money. Uh, he taught me a lot of uh, life skills that I, you know, I should have had uh, taught to me growing up but didn't. And, and, and because he had a similar, although I think his, his background was much tougher than mine, coming out of foster homes and so forth, right? But he had a similar um, kind of track uh, to mine. We both liked uh, to ride motorcycles. We both liked fast cars. Um, we both had a bit on our own from an early age. Uh, we both had kind of um, disruptive uh, family situations. And, um, and we both were... Uh, extremely independent. So we had, even though we were of different generations, and at the time he was the biggest movie star in the world, I mean, bar none. Um, and I was just this young, you know, girl who was trying to make my way in Hollywood. Uh, but we had so much in common. And, uh, and we could just talk and talk and talk and talk about everything. And I, I just am always grateful, always grateful for that, that brief time that I had with him. There is a movie uh, entitled Towering Inferno. Oh. Steve, Steve McQueen plays a role along with uh, Paul Newman. He does a lot with his eyes, with his face, with his expressions, look of fear, look of love, look of apprehension, control, success. How important do you feel language is? And in point of fact, do you feel we've lost some of those things that silent film stars were able to portray so easily? Well, I think that language is terribly important. Um, I, I, without language, you'd have no scripts. And because, you know, silent film stars didn't have full scripts that they worked from. You know, going back to Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare, who in my mind is the king of language, um, you need language. You need language to communicate. Yes, silent film stars were very, very effective in that they could project emotions through expression and um, movement. But I think language, uh, it, it took us to another evolution. So when the talkies came in, um, some of the silent film stars. And, and I know I played one in a, in a TV movie. I played Billy Dove, who was a huge silent film star and who did not make the transition to talkies. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people from, from that time period did not make that transition. And it was the next evolution. There's always an evolution. There's an evolution in, in uh, film and entertainment about every 20 20 years. It's very interesting. And, and that was another evolution. So yes, language is incredibly important. Of course, unless you're a mime, and then, and then you don't need language. Perhaps a, a bifurcated two-part question. Firstly, do you enjoy rehearsal, and do you feel it's necessary? Do you feel you lose spontaneity? And secondly, how do you incorporate that with your experiences as a director? Well, are you speaking of film, television, or stage regarding rehearsal? Allow me for the moment to speak generally of performance, exuding an attitude. Oh, okay. Well, I love rehearsal. I, but it's very different. Rehearsal and those three mediums are very, very different. And, of course, on stage, it's vitally, you, you have to rehearse. Um, 
um, I am more of a film actress than a stage actress, even though I have done stage uh, and was trained uh, in stage work. But my career has been primarily film and television. I, when we get the privilege of getting rehearsal for film or television, it's a gift, and, and it's rare. It's really, really rare. You know, if you get, if you're lucky enough to even get a read-through of, a, of the script, that's rare. I, would, I wish that there could be more, but time and money, you know? So I, I'm very used to just going, you know, appearing on a set, going to work, and never met anybody, never rehearsed with anybody, and maybe I've met the director and had a conversation, hopefully. And, uh, and then we start, you know, someplace in the middle of the script or at the end of the script, and no rehearsals. I mean, you, you get a, you know, you get your blocking little, little run through before you shoot the scene, and then, and then the stand-ins come in and to set the lights. But, um, and, but that's it. And then, so usually you'll find a group of actors, you know, huddled over in a corner, uh, you know, reading the lines like mad, and and well, okay, if you do this, I'll do that, and and, and that's kind of how it goes. And if you're lucky to be on a, you know, a, a very large budget film, then you will have some rehearsal time, which is, which is a gift. So I am, uh, I'm all for a rehearsal. Do you feel it's in inve- discovery time? You know, if you don't have rehearsal, you don't have any discovery time, mm. and everything is just put on film and. And you and it's it's hard. You've posited a question for me. I had interviewed uh, an individual who was mentored, as you were, by Steve McQueen. She was mentored by Frank Sinatra in Las Vegas, wow. and she said that her concern was being too good too soon during rehearsal and leaving something on stage one night, and then desperately trying to find it the next night. How do you go to a point that you've experienced and really not entirely sure how you got there? It sounds to me like you're talking about a singer with the other, the other person. She was a singer, She was right? a singer, yes. But I think it applies to a person portraying a role, dancing, singing, Fred Astaire telling Ginger Rogers, now you're dancing, and she's saying, well, tomorrow can I do this? How does one deal with that? No, well, that's, that's a live performance, but it, it, it's different, right? But also, but also you do have that if you have multiple takes on a film or a TV show. And what if you do take after take? I mean, some directors like one take, two take, that's it. Some like 50. And again, time and money dictates that. But... Um, I really don't like 50 takes. I don't, I don't find that I personally need 50 takes. But if the director, who is the boss, needs 50 takes, because I'm not the only cog in that wheel. There's a lot of moving parts there. And if the director needs those 50 takes, then we do those 50 takes. And there's always a good reason. It's not just to waste time or money. And, you know, the director has to deal with a much bigger picture than, than me. And there's all the other actors, there's the camera, there's the costumes, there's the whole panoply of, uh, sorry, I pronounced that wrong. There's the whole realm that the director is dealing with. And um, if he or she needs those 50 takes, then, then we do 50 takes. Even though for me personally, as an artist, it, I don't like those 50 takes. I don't mind 10 or 15. It's the 50 that when I start getting a little bit like, oh, God, are we going to do this again? Um, and on stage, though, it's, it's, um, it's different because you're on and then that's it for that performance and then you're off. 
And then there is the fear of, gee, can I do that again? That was really good. You know, can I do that again tomorrow night? Um, I hope so. Let me think how I got there. And if you have your technique down, you'll be able to get there again. And then the reverse is true that, say you did a little, you know, you come off stage and, and you're like, oh, God, I just... I just didn't get it tonight. It just wasn't, mm, I just didn't reach what I wanted to reach. And then, but you have the next night. And so that's, that's good that you have, unless it's, you know, closing night, but you have the next night. And um, so you can, you can fix it and you do. I mean, you try little different things, you know, every night you change a little bit here, you change a little bit there. You know, maybe your voice is better one night, maybe you feel better one, maybe you have a cold one night. So, but on film, it's, it's trickier because you, when you do that one scene, if you do it 50 times or you do one take, right, that's it. You don't come back the next day and do that scene again, unless there are reshoots, which are rare. Um, again, time and money. Um, you, that's it. So, you move on from that from that scene, and then you have to remember the because a scene is a puzzle piece that fits into a big puzzle, and you got to remember how that puzzle, how you designed that puzzle piece to fit into the bigger puzzle of the entire role and the entire script. And whereas on stage, it's linear. You go from the beginning, you go to the end, and that's it. All bam one night, and then you repeat it the next night, not so on film. Some people have a real hard time uh, making that transition. Either film actors have a hard time making the transition to, to stage because of everything I just said, and then the reverse. Uh, stage actors have a very hard time making the trans- transition to film because you start in the middle or you start at the end, and you have to have your whole blueprint in your head of, well, what did the beginning of this, how did it affect me as a character to be able to deliver that, that end scene? But you haven't shot the beginning scene yet. So it has to be in your head, has to be in, in your universe. And you have to, like a lot of actors, do very extensive maps or histories. I do histories of okay, so in this scene, my character was this, and that scene, so that you're not just inventing something if you're, say, starting from the end of the of the script, and then you can't, it doesn't match when you get to the beginning of the script or an earlier scene. So that's a long answer to your question, but there you go. I think the only answer that can be given to that question is a long answer because there's so many comprehensive things to consider. We must, uh, I feel, give fairness to Carol of the Bells. Can you talk about the inception of the film? I know you've mentioned why it's so incredibly different, your exposure to it, how you became part of it, and how you feel about it. Um, Well, um, it's a very groundbreaking film in that what I said earlier about we have and you've already spoken to Jerry Jewell. We have three people in the cast, Jerry being included, R.J. Mitty, um, who also has cerebral palsy, and uh, Carol, I mean, sorry, Andrea Friedman, who plays Carol, and she has Down syndrome, and the character has Down syndrome, and then the crew has 70% disabilities. So there was all of that, which makes it uh, quite groundbreaking, and for me personally, quite authentic, and um uh, the idea came from, uh, well, two places. Uh, one, the writer, uh, John, and then uh, Joey, the director, Joey Travolta, um, who has, uh, since 2007, I believe, he created film schools because his degree is in special ed, even though he's an actor and a producer, director. But his degree is in special ed, and he has a lot of uh, compassion and empathy and drive to um, help people with disabilities. So he uh, 
started film schools. He has seven in California, and then he does film camps across the country, I believe, in the summer months, I think, and to, um, to teach people with disabilities how to work on film crews. And uh, so they end up with uh, financial independence. Um, they have a career. Uh, they fulfilled a goal and a dream. And uh, so he always wanted to merge the two, uh, the film schools and Hollywood. And he wanted to get to a point where he could do a feature film with Hollywood talent, but with his uh, gradu- graduated his students who had graduated from his schools as crew. So Carol of the Bells fulfilled that dream for Joey. And I became involved in it very simply. Uh, just I got a call from my agent saying, they want you to do this film. Do you want to read the script? And I said, yes. And they sent me some video uh, from Joey's schools. And, and uh, John Travolta, Joey's brother, was uh, he had used some of the students in a film of his. And he's an old, old, old friend of mine. And um, so I saw the video, which was amazing seeing these. And they're young. A lot of them are you know, young, young, uh, young adults and older teenagers. Uh, working on film crews, and then I read the script, and it was like, okay, well, I'm done. And so I called my agent and said, uh, yeah, and she said, yeah, this is a no-brainer. So I did it, and we did a, uh, it was a exhausting shoot. I think we did 12 days or two weeks, something. We have a great cast, and, and the people I named, and then we also have Donna Mills and Donna Pascal, um, some other people who are who are wonderful, and we just did it, and it was very exciting and and exhilarating and different. And I did a lot of research because that's what I do, and interviewed people who are professional caregivers, and then did a lot of research online as to different forms of disabilities. That was really eye opening, and and then went on the set, and and uh, and my research helped, but. Uh, it didn't prepare me for the level of enthusiasm and professionalism of of these young uh, filmmakers who happen to have disabilities. They were wonderful, wonderful human beings, and they would get to the set an hour early, and everybody else is, you know, kind of coming, oh, I'm due right now, here I am but an hour early because they were so enthusiastic and they'd get there before even the trucks were there. So it was, it was really wonderful. And you'd walk on the set, I would walk on the set and look around the first day and said, wait a minute, who has disabilities? Because I couldn't tell, unless it was an obvious physical disability, and then, of course, you can tell. Um, but when it, if, if it was uh, developmental or if it was neurodiverse, I couldn't tell. And I would have to be told, oh, yeah, that person has Asperger's, that person has, you know, this, and that person has that. But I couldn't tell. And it was just a, it was a great shoot. It was, it was different. It was unique. You know, nobody ever complained. And um, you always have a lot of complaints on film crews. And they're good natured. I mean, it's a tradition to complain. And uh, because these people had not been schooled in the tradition of complaining, like the rest of us, there was no complaining, and that was refreshing. So it was a wonderful experience, and I, I do encourage people to see it. It's playing in selected theaters, and will continue to roll out that way, but it's also going to be streaming, I think, in March on all platforms, and then, and then I know it's going on uh, cable at some point. So I do encourage people to see it, because it will it'll make you laugh, it'll make you cry, and it also uh, will enlighten. It'll enlighten me. And I've, I've seen it because I've been to four different premieres for it. And uh, people come out going, wow, I never knew. I never knew. I am thoroughly looking forward to seeing it. And frankly, I'm looking at the clock, and this hour went by so incredibly quickly. It's usually indicative of a fine interview. Thank you. I, God, I at my clock. Wow. I look forward to, at your discretion, doing this again, Lee. I would love to. It would be a great pleasure, Robert. You're a wonderful interviewer, very, very insightful, 
and very thoughtful. And it's really been a pleasure. Your kindness is most appreciated. I would have to sign off. I wish you well. My name is Robert. The program is Seldom Said. <laughs>